This is the National Museum's Liverpool podcast, where we'll thread together stories from our collections with the experiences of people in Liverpool today, exploring connections between the past and the present. Today we're talking about sex. Yes, you heard me right. A topic not many would associate with museums, but that's the thing. Sex is so ingrained in social and political history. I'm Ellie Field, and this week we'll explore adult sex education and empowerment, find out why a biscuit tin in our collection is connected to the partial decriminalisation of gay sex, and shed light on the devastating legacy of the Buggery Act, the first UK law to make sex between men illegal, put in place by Henry VIII. Now, over to a past version of me as I talk to Chris Higgins from Access Sexual Health Clinic and Maz and Maz from Sexuality Social about sex education. Everyone remembers that one day at school. It sort of feels like a weird fever dream. You watch a woman give birth from an angle you would only know if you were a doctor. Teachers bring in bananas, cucumbers and condoms and the girls are taught that they are going to deal with pain once a month for the next 40 years or so. And the boys are taught something else. I wouldn't know, as in my school we were separated. Chris Higgins talks to me about working in sexual health clinics and how we need to get rid of the stigma towards talking about sexual health, which most likely comes from that mad day back at school where we were taught sex ed. I think sexual health services do have a reputation of being where um, dirty people go. Uh, VD, clap clinics. The reputation is you go to the uh, sexual health uh, services when you're in trouble, when you've done something wrong, when you've done something dirty, when you've got an infection. What people need to step back away from, that kind of prejudiced view or that stigmatised view on why people attend sexual health services are... If people have sex, and a lot of people do have sex, there is always going to be the risk of an infection being passed from one person to the other. That's just the nature of what happens when people put their genitals together and have sex together. Just like pregnancy is a risk, sexual health services do have have to bear the kind of stigma or the attitude that it's where you go when you've done something wrong or you've done something dirty. And um, it's it's quite it, it's not a conversation people have openly or readily. Nobody ever starts a, a, a conversation at a dinner party by saying, "Sorry, I'm late. I've just come from the sexual health clinic. I've got chlamydia again, and they've just prescribed me seven days of doxycycline." It's not a good conversation opener. I don't know why not because there'll be somebody else around that table that's also been to a sexual health clinic that's been prescribed doxycycline for seven days because they've got chlamydia. But there's a stigma attached to talking openly about sexual health and sexual infections and where to go when they need to be treated. In the past couple of years, healthy conversations about sex have become more popular, with shows like Sex Education representing an assortment of sexual health issues that no other TV shows had acknowledged before. Chris tells me how this has helped sexual health clinics and how the show It's a Sin perfectly summarised the trauma of the AIDS crisis. The Netflix show uh, Sex Education had a hugely positive influence on how people talk about sex. I mean, it's slightly exaggerated in its representation. But what it did was make sure that there was lots of emerging genders and sexualities represented. And the conversation that was taking place was one that kind of made it entertaining. It was comedic. But I think it did invite other conversations outside of the um, sitting at home watching it. People were talking about it in their colleges, in schools. So I would say, yeah. Uh, sex education certainly did have a positive input into opening up the conversation about what is gender, what is sexuality, what is sex? Is this what's happening with our young people? It is. But to see it put in front of you in an entertaining way gives 
that conversation a safe space to be had. Because what you're actually talking about is a programme and what you found funny and characters and people on the screen. What you're really talking about is something that's touched maybe a feeling, a desire, an emotion, a thought within you. But it's safe to talk about it if you're talking about somebody else. Programmes like Sex Education opened that out. I think another really important programme that did that was the It's a Sin Channel 4 programme uh, by Russell Davis. Gave a snapshot of the lives of young people growing up in London in the 80s and 90s during the emergence of the HIV AIDS crisis. And I think that, different to sex education, which I think is aimed at a more a younger demographic, that really appealed to a wider generational spread in that for older people, they remember what it was like going through that time. And for younger people, they were seeing and learning for the first time the impact HIV and AIDS had on people that were just like them. Lastly, I spoke to Chris about LGBTQ plus sex clinics. Heteronormative sexual health is one thing, but for the LGBTQ plus communities, it has taken a while to get the services right. So I've been working in, uh, in sexual health, particularly around HIV prevention as a health promotion specialist and a sexual health advisor for the past 20 years. And I've seen um, a huge difference in how um, LGBTQIA plus uh, sexual health is kind of managed and promoted. So when I first started, and I'm, I'd say 20, 21 years ago, uh, this was in London-based, there used to be within gum clinics, so sexual health clinics, um, specific clinics for LGBT um, patients. And they were usually separated off into different waiting rooms. And they were usually at different times from when uh, other clinics were running. And it felt like we were doing the right thing because the, the, the patients that were, were part of that community did need specific input. So we thought, we felt at the time we were doing the right thing. What we also did was kind of ghettoized sexual health for LGBTQIA+. Um, it, it made it feel other, made it feel different. Um, attendance at that clinic actually outed you. Um, it made you kind of stand out. Um, advertisements for those clinics were obviously aimed at a, a particular demographic, a particular group of people. So what we, what we were as, as services were led by people within the community saying, there is absolutely no reason why we can't uh, attend generic clinics that are for everybody else. But what we do need is staff that are trained in being able to provide us with a service that is relevant to, to us without us feeling judged or um, looked down upon. So our service development is led by the people that use the services. And if a, a particular group say, actually, we don't need a, a specialist service, then why would we run one? But for those uh, members of the LGBT commu uh, community, and in particular trans and non-binary, if there is still a need, if there's still a request from sexual health services to run specific services, like the Butterfly Clinic, which is run within Access, then we'll still staff those and we'll still provide that safe space for that, that, for that service to run. Now, the next two people I spoke to about sexual health and education are Marilla and Marianne, but I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, we're Maz and Maz, and we are two queer, bi, vulva enthusiasts, and we run the project Sexuality Social in Liverpool. Sexuality Social is a programme of workshops directed mostly towards women and non-binary people. 
that addresses the issues around sex, confidence and pleasure. Yeah, so one of the benefits of the workshops is that people, we hope, are gaining a lot more knowledge about themselves and some self-awareness. So realising like lots of the things that maybe they've been worrying about, blaming themselves for, uh, are actually very normal. So in terms of like vulva love, we're really normalising vulva diversity and helping people recognise that The way their vulva looks is absolutely perfect, just the way it is. And a lot of people just haven't been told that before. Um, And also we do one workshop just on sex positivity. And one of the benefits of that is that a lot of people do put a lot of pressure on themselves to have certain experiences of sex, um, for sex to always be mind-blowing, lots of pressures around orgasms. Um, and people really put a lot of self-blame if they if their experience of sex isn't like that. So what we're finding is people who are coming to these workshops can finally sort of understand um, the fact that desire, arousal is a very complex thing and very different for everyone um, and sort of like taking away a lot of that pressure for themselves, uh, understanding orgasms a bit better and understanding like the way their body is working and how they can like harness lots of these things and make sex better for themselves as well. After speaking to Maz and Maz about their workshops, I felt a great sense of relief. As a bisexual woman, I have struggled throughout my life to feel like I have people to talk to who truly understood what I felt. I am lucky enough to have a family that support me and brilliant friends, but it still feels isolating when there's no one who can fully understand what it's like. What Sexuality Social does is incredibly important. Marilla tells me how other people have benefited from their workshops. But for example, at our Vulva Love workshop, we had a garland of real life vulvas, all in their glory and diversity. And for lots of people, it was the first time that they'd seen another vulva. So people were like, oh my God, that one's me, or I look like that one. Um, And people were also just, had felt all their lives ashamed of their vulva or how low their labia hung, or all these different things that they weren't, how much pubic hair they had or didn't have, or felt the pressures to have either way. Uh, You know, and people had said, it feels really liberating to be able to see that and and, and normalize that my, my body. Um, I would have sex and I have the light off um, because I'm ashamed of what my vulva looks like. Um, And being able to see those other vulvas, it was, you know, really powerful for those people. And we were were really lucky, weren't we? We had people from different genders, different sexualities, different cultures, and with all with their own experiences as well of sex education and like the relationship they have with their bodies and their relationships and their sex. And... So it hit people in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was just, you know, that's our vulva love. And for the bi workshop, and I know, Maz, you touched on this earlier, didn't you, about really loving your sexuality and realising, you know, that's a part of you to be celebrated. So that was really lovely, wasn't it? And I think there was a lot of shared experience within the bi workshop, Biolog, because for so many people who fall under that umbrella, their identity is erased and they don't have those spaces to be able to share their experiences. Um, I think another example, and this is where, you know, this is one of the ways that we try and be inclusive, but could make sex ed inclusive all the time, is like, Marilla goes into a really great speech around uh, how foreplay is a very heteronormative word and the impact of that on 
all relationships, all types of sex. So the mm. idea of foreplay being something that happens before sex erases queer sex a lot of the time, particularly for people who have vulvas, but also within heterosexual relationships, it erases a lot of the things that actually creates pleasure. The idea that fingering and blowjobs and all oral sex uh, is all foreplay just erases a lot of the things that people really enjoy. And I think one of the takeaways was people saying, like, not just like people who were queer, but people who were saying, I'm going to go home. I'm going to tell my partner that, that that foreplay is a really heteronormative yeah. word and we need to be focusing on these things yeah. and we need to be sort of celebrating oral sex more. Like, yeah. that, that was that was a quite a nice takeaway, yeah. I think. Going home and having a wank and going <laughs> to, like, get familiar with their own bodies and their own, you know, their own, like, pleasure. Like, what do you find pleasurable? Do that in your sex. Like, do that more because there's a really, like, linear path of how sex should be. And actually, if we just take that kind of end goal away of an orgasm and think that's not important right now, like, let's just take some time on exploring our bodies and communicating and, and you know, making it like a, a sensual, like, experience, then you learn so much about each other and that intimacy it's yeah so that's really important so people were like right okay I'm unlearning this sort of information that we've been told and now let's kind of address this and let's take a new lens and looking at all these things. That was Chris Higgins from Access Sexual Health Clinic and Maz and Maz from Sexuality Social there talking about sex education. Chris touched on it briefly but the taboo around talking about gay sex has had a real impact on the way gay men have been treated in the past. Hector Lee spoke to Kay Jones, lead curator of urban and community history, about the complexities of coded language in and outside of gay culture. The Wolfenden Report, published in 1957, was a landmark moment in the history of gay rights in the United Kingdom. It took a scandalous number of high-profile people being convicted of homosexual offences for an investigation to take place. Getting all bureaucratic for a moment, a committee recommended that, quote, homosexual behaviour between consent and adults in private should no longer be a criminal offence. Ten years later, in 1967, the Wolfenden Report was used to reform the Sexual Offences Act, which partially decriminalised homosexuality and prostitution in England and Wales. In the report, homosexual people and sex workers were discreetly referred to by the codenames Huntleys and Palmers. Apparently, this was so as not to offend the delicate sensibilities of the women in the committee. But Huntley and Palmers already existed. A biscuit manufacturer and Heighton. I'm Hector Lee. I identify as a non-binary queer person myself. I'm an LGBTQIA plus activist, a DJ and a promoter. I run inclusive event spaces in Liverpool and pride myself on making them safe for the queer community. I sat down with Kay Jones from the Museum of Liverpool. The museum coordinated an exhibition about LGBTQIA plus history and they included a Huntley and Palmer's biscuit jar alongside a copy of the Wolfenden Report. I wanted to explore how such an everyday item can be a prism through which to view queer history. 
I mean, it's a really unusual object, I think, to have in an exhibition about queer culture. You could see people going, why is there a biscuit jar on display? Kind of walking over them, reading the story behind it. I think in museums, we like to think about um, different interpretations of things and surprising things, using things in different ways. So Huntley and Palmer did have a factory in Heighton. So for one, there was a, a strong Liverpool connection. But it's such an interesting object to make people think about one language, around um, queer history and also I think just kind of really setting the scene about how different society was then. The difference for people living queer lives, it's such a kind of massive difference to today. Just trying to set the scene for imagining if you lived in 1967, kind of that society that people were living in at the time and the attitudes I think it is hard for us to think sometimes how different it wasn't really it wasn't that long ago was it it's alarming and a little scary to look back and remember that people thought homosexuality was a disease it's important to remember that this is in living memory even though it seems archaic today Though the report helped inform legislation, people's attitudes can be slower to change. Homosexuality was still taboo, even after the release of the report. Um, but the report was, they didn't shy away from the fact that they still found homosexuality kind of morally repugnant in a way. It was all about the criminality around it that they couldn't prosecute. When the partial decriminalisation came in, it was very much, if you were 21, in private. There was no equality. Um, there was The, the legal uh, age of consent was 16 for heterosexuals, so a massive gap still. As part of the exhibition, I talked to people and they kind of said, well, it's, it, feel, it felt like a massive moment, but really it made no real difference to everyday life. This kind of effective change in society legally didn't really change people's opinion. You couldn't walk down the street holding hands. You couldn't chat someone up. Um, I think there were still all those signals that you weren't the same and you still shouldn't be doing this kind of behind closed doors where you're not going to offend anyone. It's kind of, that's okay, but not anything else. Personally, I feel empowered by reclaiming words like queer that were once slurs. Queer history is so interwoven with code words. On one hand, the existence of queer people was minimised by using code words to erase them. On the other, the queer community used secret languages to communicate safely with one another. I asked Kay about different forms of language and the sensitive nature of different viewpoints. It's really interesting how Huntley and Palmer's was used as that code word for homosexuals and prostitutes. It's such a kind of um, everyday uh, domestic thing to have chosen. You kind of wonder how that came about, what the process was. Um, and I suppose it's, um, it's making it a safe thing it took out any um, kind of danger or connotations and it was such a beige word, I suppose, using biscuits. <laughs> um, and I think to normalise something using those very kind of everyday 
normal words. I think it's really interesting thinking about why those words were chosen in relation to homosexuals and prostitutes as well. And the power behind those words are actually taking the power away from the words too. When thinking about kind of different language used um, in relation to um, kind of queer communities, I suppose the, the obvious thing that comes to mind is Polari and how um, you had to use this secret coded language and that developed a lot over time too. And that's kind of been reclaimed by the queer community. Um, but also thinking about um, words like queer, um, we've worked with um, local artists like Ben Uden, who in response to um, homophobic hate crimes, um, he's done um, a queer without fear kind of artwork. It was torn down outside of fact, and you, you may have known about it. It was really interesting as a response to that because as, as allies, we supported Ben and, and displayed one of his posters. We have some of his artworks in, in the museum's collections. And um, even on our social media, the feedback from other gay people about the use of queer and they very much saw that still as a slur and didn't like the fact that the museum was kind of reinforced using this language and that was just a really interesting discussion about how for a lot of gay people that is still a slur to them and they don't want to be referred to like that but then for other people like Ben they have absolutely reclaimed that word and it encompasses kind of them, their community, moving forward and having this, this brand new identity forged out of discrimination, essentially. So um, that the idea of language evolving and, and kind of being used in lots of different ways is, is really, really interesting. One of my favourite quotes is, be the queer person you wished you would have seen when you were younger. I believe it's incredibly important to keep queer people visible when showcasing community history. I asked Kay what she thought. I think it's really important that museums tell these stories. And for me in particular, I know from a lot of people who, especially in countries where um, homosexuality is still illegal. So the response to the exhibition from people like that who just cannot fathom that National Museums Liverpool would obviously tell those stories, be really upfront and being really kind of supportive. We're, we're great allies. We've got great connections with the, the local communities. We want them to help us and we want to help those back. So I think it's when people see really empowering stories that really impact their own lives personally. It's always those personal stories that you connect with, isn't it? So that's really what I really want to do, kind of give people that opportunity to tell their stories that they may never have told before, but for that to be an empowering and inspiration to, to lots of different people. Um, the exhibition wasn't all about kind of celebration. We had to talk, talk about kind of those darker subjects as well. We definitely didn't shy away from that. So obviously people talked about the impact of being sent to prison just for loving someone who they wanted to. Um, stories of blackmail and, and all of those horrible things that are associated with it and kind of but also celebrating that really long history of fighting for your rights fighting to be who you want to be and not living a lie but also for museums it's really important to collect those stories and those objects that aren't always kept but also to celebrate those stories of empowerment and inspiring other people. That was Hector Lee talking to Kay Jones about the coded language around LGBTQ plus sex. 
The Wolfenden Report was the first step back in laws against gay sex. But where did the law start? To find that out, we need to go way back and revisit the Tudors. I spoke to Kate O'Donoghue, curator of international fine art about the Buggery Act, put into place by Henry VIII to dissolve the monasteries and remove power from the Catholic Church. The Tudors. A topic almost every child learns at school in the UK. We all know about Henry VIII and his famous set of wives whose tragic lives are trivialised into a nice little poem. But something that is not discussed at school is how Henry VIII was the first person to make gay sex illegal. So the Buggery Act represents the first secular law in England or Britain, which criminalised same-sex activity. And sort of to quote from the act, it made the detestable and abominable vice of buggery with mankind or beast punishable by death. Kate O'Donoghue, curator of international fine art at National Museums Liverpool, explains Henry VIII's complex reasonings behind the Buggery Act, which made sex between men punishable by death. So it was brought in during the reign of Henry VIII. So it was written in 1533 and came into effect in 1534. Um, but buggery itself had a very um, conveniently vague definition, and um, particularly for the Tudors, it really became a term for sort of anything that was perceived as a sort of sexual deviation. So we see it was applied to sort of a wide variety of things, and this included sodomy, and um, included bestiality, which was considered intimacy with the devil in animal form, um, and it was even applied to witchcraft. So we can see it had a, a really wide range of applications. Um, and this sort of vague definition is actually what made it a very sort of useful tool throughout the dissolution of the monasteries. So I think really prior to this time, issues of morality, sort of particularly sort of sexual morality, um, they were usually dealt with by church courts and by religious institutions. And sort of from what we know, sort of cases of same-sex activity very rarely came up at these courts. And again, from what we can tell, we, they were usually treated very leniently. Um, so it was certainly something that was seen as sinful, um, but it's not something that we really see sort of widespread or systemic punishment for at this time. Um, this is certainly the case in England um, and Britain at this time, but of course the situation really varies across Europe um, and indeed other parts of the world as well. In 1534, Parliament passes the Act of Supremacy, and this is what declares Henry supreme head on earth of the Church of England. Um, and this is actually the same year that we see the Buggery Act coming into play. So Henry at this stage, he's a figure of you know, immense power. He's the monarch, he's the head of the church, um, but he still has his challenges. Um, by bringing in the Buggery Act, we sort of take this issue that's usually been dealt with by the Catholic Church um, and we're putting it into a sort of secular arena, passes that sort of moral authority and that almost sort of sense of moral superiority onto Henry, who's monarch. So the Buggery Act really gave Henry the power to go after the monasteries and ultimately between 1536 and 1541, we saw the, the dissolution, the very effective dissolution of the monasteries. After Henry's death, um, his daughter Mary comes to the throne and she sort of famously tries to undo all of his reforms and restore Catholicism. And one of the things she does is she repeals the Buggery Act in 1553. And um, it is reinstated by Elizabeth about 10 years later. Again, we see the act is scarcely implemented during Elizabeth's reign. Despite this, the influence of the Buggery Act resonates very strongly throughout the following centuries and right into present day. The Buggery Act remains in place until 
1828 and it's replaced by the Offences Against the Person Act, um, you know, which still criminalises same-sex activity. And buggery remains a capital offence until 1861. So what happened after the Buggery Act? And how did we get to where we are today? Matt Exley, Participation Manager at National Museums Liverpool and co-chair of the LGBTQ plus staff group, gave me an incredible breakdown of the history of laws against sex between men. So the Buggery Act stays in place for nearly 300 years uh, until in 1828, the Offences Against the Person Act repeals the Buggery Act, but Section 15 of the Offences Against the Person Act of 1828 maintains the death penalty for buggery. Men continue to be uh, executed under this act. Uh, The last two people to be executed for sexual activity between two men was in 1835, and that was James Pratt and John Smith, last two men to be hanged for sexual activity between men. Death remains the consequence for sexual activity between men until 1861, when the Offences Against the Person Act comes in. And this removes the death penalty for uh, anal sex between men. Um, But the consequences, as I'm sure you can imagine, still not great. Uh, It's penal servitude for life or for a period of no less than 10 years. Um, And in 1885, Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act finally criminalised oral sex between men. Uh, And it was this law that um, Oscar Wilde, Alan Turing were prosecuted under. It took a full 10 years before finally the Sexual Offences Act was passed in 1967. And actually, after the Sexual Offences Act decriminalised some sex acts between some men in some places, Prosecutions actually rose, um, and between 1966 and 1974, uh, prosecution rates actually rose about 300%, because what this act did was it firmly crystallised what you could and couldn't do. So you could, a man could have sex with another man if they were over the age of 21, uh, they were not in the armed forces or the merchant navy, um, and that they were in a private property. So. Although some acts between some people have been decriminalised, prosecution rates are still rising. And that act in 1967 only applied in England and Wales. Um, Staggeringly, it took till 1980 for it to be carried through to Scotland, 1982 in Northern Ireland, and on the Isle of Man as late as 1992. So in 1994, the age of consent between same-sex couples was reduced to 18. Uh, In 2001, it was finally equalised to 16. The, the same age as couples of different sexes. Um, and then some of the last laws to come in that policed sexual activity between people of the same sex um, was in 2000, when finally, and I mean 2000, 22 years ago, um, it finally became possible to be a gay person or a person who has sex with someone of the same sex in the armed forces and then um, in the merchant navy. So that's really quite recent. Um, Finally, in 2003, the Sexual Offences Act was introduced, uh, another one, and for the first time since 1533, so we're looking at nearly 500 years, England and Wales had a criminal code that did not police um, sex acts between people of the same sex. The law was extended to Northern Ireland in 2008 and then came into effect in Scotland, finally in 2013. So we're talking really quite recently that this legislation against people having sex with people of the same sex came into, well, obsolescence. 
The, the last piece of legislation that relates to gay sex, or sex between people of the same sex, I should say, was the Merchant Shipping, open brackets, Homosexual Conduct, close brackets, Act of 2017, which finally repealed a previous act that had allowed people to be sacked from the Merchant Navy for having gay sex. So you could be sacked for having gay sex in the Merchant Navy as recently as the 2010s. Listening to Matt explain that timeline really puts into perspective how certain moments in history can have such a lasting effect on the future. The Buggery Act was put into law in 1533, and it took 484 years for the UK to remove all laws against gay sex, not to mention the lasting ramifications of the social and cultural side effects of these laws. Matt goes into more detail on how this affects the LGBTQ community. Because sex between people of the same sex was criminalised for so long, um, we're not necessarily talking about the 1533 Buggery Act, we're talking about my parents' lifetimes, certainly my grandparents' lifetimes. It meant that because it was criminal, anything that's criminal is seen as wrong, it's dirty, it's horrible. And although sex acts between people of the same sex has been slowly decriminalised over the last 50, 55 odd years, I think it's retained some of that stigma. And... It's certainly much more shocking when a same-sex couple have sex on television, even today, compared to, I don't know, Rob and Linda on Coronation Street. I don't know if there are characters called Rob and Linda, but you know what I mean. Um, and so there's still that stigma and that sort of dirtiness, I think, attached by wider society to sex acts between people of the same sex. Um And I think because of those laws, and of course things like Section 28, which essentially banned the discussion of same-sex couples' relationships in schools for so many years. It means that a lot of queer people didn't get sexual, sexual health education that necessarily related to them and what they were doing, their communities, the people they wanted to have sex with, the type of sex they wanted to have. So society sort of created this, this stigma um, against people having sex with members of the same sex. In the middle of the daytime, you can watch a television programme discussing my fake Robin Linda's sort of sex life. And it's quite usual that we'll talk about that. Um, but we wouldn't talk about it if it was I don't know, Stephen and Jamie or, or Helen and Tina. We don't talk about queer sex in the same way that we talk about sex between people of different uh, sexes. And so because of that, again, that cycle keeps repeating that we push it underground, we keep it quiet, we keep telling everyone it's dirty or wrong. We might not overtly do that, but by not putting it on the same level of respect or shine the same light on it that we would with Rob and Linda, we keep that cycle going of it being underground, it being dirty. And we won't break that until we're ready to actually have a conversation about gay sex without bringing up old taboos, old stereotypes, um, and without keeping it a dirty thing. Although the, the history of our, our community is tinged with sadness of loss, of, of criminalisation, I do see in those like 14, 15, 16, 17-year-olds a real change. And I do think in the future, that negativity will feel more and more distant. And I hope as a community, we won't carry it with us 
like I think people of my age do, and certainly I think people older than I am within that community carry it with them. And I do think that in the future, we're going to be able to look at this as the distant past, the very distant past, and hopefully have a lot less of it hanging over us. So I do have hope for the future. Um, and I do have hope that we'll have a much freer, happier, better community for it. What a great way to finish, with some hope. That was Matt Exley giving us a vast timeline of the history of laws against gay sex. And that brings us to the end of this episode about sex. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more stories like this, you can support National Museums Liverpool by making a donation or becoming a member at liverpoolmuseums.org.uk slash join and support. Thanks for listening to the National Museums Liverpool podcast. And don't forget to check out the other episodes in this series.